The world's eyes are on China, and not just because of the pandemic. Between one and two million Uyghur people are interned in re-education camps throughout the communist country. Today, we ask a special guest who's been in the thick of it and who was even detained by China what is happening, all coming up in just one minute. But first, a special message from ABWE's president, Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined again, as always, by Scott, the Scott Dunford, the Scott W. Dunford, West Coast Mobilizer for ABWE, and Lead Church Planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. Scott, as always, love talking to you, love doing the show with you. One of the things about this show that our listeners have learned by now, we're not a current events show. We're not a news show, right? We don't provide cultural uh, analysis on everything happening as it happens. But every once in a while, uh, there is overlap between the themes that we address on the show Mm -hmm. and what's in the news. One of the things that I've seen lately, uh, just six days ago uh, from the time of this recording, uh, that uh, the U.S. Senate, and so just a heads up to everyone, this is one of our more serious episodes I saw a headline six days ago that uh, the U.S. Senate uh, just approved a human rights bill uh, brought by, I believe, Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess it still has to go through the House. Uh, But this is of particular interest to us, especially to you, Scott. And the human rights bill I'm talking about is one designed to protect the Uyghur people group in China. I know that's something that's close to your heart. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm really thankful for Senator Rubio. He seems to be one that's always pushing this issue. But it, it was it's something that's really interesting because the issues that have been going on with the Uyghur people um, have, are not new, and yet thankfully um, through some really hardships, this is actually becoming high on the radar of of even people in the states. A few years ago, um, no one, if you asked them about the Uyghur people, would have even very few people would have ever heard of them. And now it seems like more and more Americans are paying attention. But there, but it's more than just a, a political crisis or a humanitarian crisis. There's also a spiritual dynamic to this. And, and so, it, and it, but it's also sensitive. So we have a, it's been hard to find guests that are willing to talk mm-hmm. about this most of the time because most of them are living in China. Well, a lot of them have not, are not living in China anymore for no you know, not by choice, but because of the government of China's choice. And uh, so we I'm excited to be able to actually dive into this discussion with people who actually know what they're talking about. And so I have a longtime friend, Stephen Strange. Uh, That's not his real name. And you're not going to hear his real voice (laughs) because it is a really sensitive issue with a very powerful government who doesn't want this information out. 
Um, the, the the Doctor Stephen Strange of Marvel fame. Well, this guy may be even smarter than that guy, but uh, but uh, I I'm excited. <laughs> but no, not the Marvel guy. But we're gonna we're gonna call him that. And uh, excited to talk about some issues that are obviously in the news, but also that go way beyond just the last few news cycles. So I'm really excited to in, in, introduce uh, my friend uh, Stephen to the show. And uh, we're just going to kick it off. Stephen, welcome. We're so glad that you're on the show. We're not going to get into a lot of personal details because we can't share those on the show. But can you just tell us a little bit, who are the Uyghur people, for those who don't know? As much of the history and background of who they are, we'd just love to hear from you. Well, Scott, Alex, thanks. I um, appreciate the invite here. And I'm certainly not <laughs> nearly as smart as Dr. Strange or uh, hopefully, hopefully a little less arrogant, I guess that would be. But no, um, so yeah, thanks. I, uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys care for the, the Uyghurs. Um, Scott and I actually have worked together a little bit in that over the years. But so the Uyghurs are, just to give you a, a brief introduction, they're a group of about 10 to 12 million people. We don't know exactly how many because it's hard to trust what the, the Chinese government is saying about them. But they're, they live primarily in Central Asia. And so if you look at the Eurasian landmass, which stretches from you know, the UK on one side as an island to Japan on the other, and they're right about in the middle. And if you look at one with um, the, the you know, geographical map and you see uh, with mountains and rivers and lakes and forests and such, you'll see a great big football-sized shaped desert right in the middle. It's actually bigger than, far bigger than the state of Texas, this desert. And right around it, the Uyghurs have been living in oases. They channel runoff from the mountains that ring this desert. And these are not like, you know, Rocky Mountain type. They're, they're actually quite taller than that. They're, um, it's the Tibetan Plateau on one side and the Pamirs on the other. And then the what's called the Tian Shan or the Heavenly Mountains on the north side of this desert. And so for, for really thousands of years, these people have been channeling the water from the uh, runoff of these mountains into their fields and living a you know reasonably peaceful life. Um, but their and so their their language is a Turkic language, so it's related to Turkish, and so they will often have a real easy time learning Turkish. It's very similar to Uzbek and Kazakh in. Um, Kyrgyz from Central Asia. In fact, with Uzbek in particular, it's very, very close. Um, Uzbeks and Uyghurs can understand each other without, with very little um, uh, uh, translation or needed at all. Actually, it's a lot of a lot of linguists think it's essentially the same language, although it has a different written script. So, the Uyghurs use a script that looks like Arabic, whereas the the Uzbeks will use a script that is. Uh, based on Cyrillic, the, the Russian alphabet, but it's essentially the same language. So, so I mean, it was an interesting caveat in that was, so, you know, we worked in Uyghur and one of my best friends was a guy named Vladimir. He was from, um, he's actually from Uzbekistan, sent as a, a, as a missionary, a Baptist missionary from Uzbekistan to work with us. And Vladimir would speak Uzbek. I would speak very heavily accented Uyghur and we got along just fine. So, um, he was his nickname was Captain Uzbekistan. He's a real neat guy, real servant of the Lord. So, so the point is that mm -hmm. the languages are similar. But um, as far as the um, the history, they're kind of like I mean, this is my word, so others would say it better. But they're almost like if you're familiar with Europeanist history, they're kind of like the poles of Central Asia, in that they're getting kicked around by all their neighbors. So rarely have they been a kind of a free political mm -hmm. entity. 
So at times, the, the Chinese, of course, if you ask the, the, the Communist Party, they would say this area has been under control of China for you know, thousands of years. And that's partially true. They've, they, they've held it off and on for you know, ever since the Han Dynasty, which is pre-Christ. And so, but they've held it for more off than on, the, the, the truth is. And, and they've never really, until the present day, they've never had a, the, the, the Chinese central government, whether it's in Beijing or Xi'an, has never had a, um, a population base of their own Chinese speakers in this region where the Uyghurs live until present day. So they've always been kind of a minority or mm. a, a minority ruling class the Chinese have, but it hasn't just been the Chinese. You know, at times the Tibetans mm. have come up and take taken sections. At times the the nomadic um, groups like the the Kazakh, modern day Kazakhs, or other kind of um, you know nomadic groups have conquered the Uyghurs because the Uyghurs are largely um, farmers and they have been for thousands of years, and so they are often played preyed on by mm. the, the the nomadic peoples. Now, the Mongols in the 1200s, 1100s, 1200s, were a, a kind of an exception. And the Uyghurs will pride themselves in the fact that they could see the power of, the, of Genghis Khan and they didn't want to oppose him. And so they actually um, surrendered to Genghis Khan. They're one of the few peoples in the, really in the, the region that did not get um, conquered in a sense. And so they became a lot of Genghis Khan's um, administrators in the empire. And so it's kind of an interesting historical caveat, but so they've never, and so the, the reality is even up to the, you know, the 20th century, Uyghurs didn't always identify themselves as like Uyghur as this one group. They were kind of, a, they had a similar language, but or even the same language, but often they would identify themselves with the oasis they came from. Because again, you've got mostly desert and then where they can get the, the, the rivers to run off, they have these uh, oases. So if you look at a real good geographical map or Google Earth of this area, you'll see a lot of brown and yellow of the desert. And then you'll see these, these patches of green. And when you travel there, it's you'll, you'll be running through the desert, which is just desolate. It's a, it's a shifting sand desert like the Sahara. It's the second largest shifting sand desert in the world after the Sahara. And so sand dunes, and it's it's quite beautiful in its own way, but you get to these oases, and the green is just striking, uh, you know, in contrast. Yeah, so beautiful. So, so that's kind of where they've been living for the longest time, but they, they really used to identify primarily as, you know, oasis dwellers, like, you know, I'm from Hotan, or I'm from Kashgar, or I'm from um, Yarkat, which is the name of some of these oases. But it's really only been in the last... Um, really since uh, Stalin, actually, that the Stalin and Mao, where they have kind of had this cohesive group that is mm. what we know of today as Uyghurs. And so what we know of today of them, of these 12, 10 to 12 million, almost all of them are Muslim, 99.98%, whatever. I mean, we know of, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's estimates of, there's probably more than a thousand um, professing believers. And of course, there could be many, many more that we just don't know about, but it's still a very, very small percentage. And we'll talk about the, the church in a little bit uh, later mm -hmm. in the program. And, and that's interesting too, because historically, you know, there was iterations of Buddhism and Manichaeanism and even a period of time in which there was a strong Christian, Nestorian Christian presence among the Uyghurs. And it wasn't really what, until like 13 or 1400 until most of them converted to Islam. Is that right? Yeah. The first is actually was earlier than that. The first, well, I mean, it started with the, 
Battle of, I think it was called Paulus or something like that in the 750s. It was a, a Chinese army was defeated by the, the, the Muslims. And really from then on, Central Asia just slowly, one by one, these uh, places mm-hmm. came under uh, the domination of Islam. And But it entered for the what we, the Uyghur people consider uh, right around 1000 AD in the Kashgar in the far west. One of their kings became Muslim, and and any student of Islam will know. And I'm, you know, there are good things to say about Islam and not so good things to say about Islam. And I don't want to get into the, the you know, uh, passing it along or, or proselytizing by the sword. But it, even Uyghurs will understand, and they'll express that it works really well for rulers. Islam does. And so it spread through rulers. So a king would decide to accept Islam, and he would, you'd say, his sub, you know, kind of impose it on his subjects. It wasn't necessarily like what sometimes we Christians can overblow things and be like, oh, well, you know, they said you're going to die or you'll be Muslim. And, you know, a lot of people were just, you know, pragmatic. And so the ruler becomes Muslim. And, you know, we've got 10 different religions here. None of them are particularly compelling. And this Islam thing seemed pretty new. And so, sure, we'll become Muslim. So it wasn't necessarily. You know, as violent as um, some Christians maybe would like to have it have it be, but but there was some violence. So, mm-hmm. but historically, they were not always Muslim. Yeah. So so bring us to the present day. Then uh, we're seeing headlines now more than ever. I think one thing this crisis has done has opened a lot of people's eyes to the um, ugliness of the regime in China. And many people more than ever now are aware of more than a million Uyghur Muslims um, being interned in re-education camps um, throughout the country. Where, where The current crisis, the current marginalization of these people, when did that start? Um, it's kind of, they've been marginalized for as long as China has been in control. Um, they were used to be, they used to be known as by a pejorative term of like turban head, but kind of the modern, I mean, you go back into the eighties, they had a, a fair bit of freedom, but there's always a little bit of tension because, you know, xenophobia is a real thing everywhere. It's not just here in America. And so you've got this, this large group of people that, um, they yeah. control a large portion of Chinese what the Chinese consider their soil, but they don't speak Chinese as a first language. A lot of them don't speak any of it at all. Um, and there, it's a different culture, a different language. They, a lot of them look different. They, um, you know, they, they've got different, um, gene pool, let's say, and, and also a different religion. And so all of that is, um, a bit of a threat to China. And so they've been, they've, you know, kind of oppressed them off and on. We hear stories during the cultural revolution in the, um, you know, the, the late sixties and early seventies where they were oppressed pretty badly. But now today's is kind of another series of that. But this is where in the Cultural Revolution, they were kind of, you know, kicking around everybody that didn't just toe the line with uh, Chairman Mao's policies. But here they are specifically targeting, the Chinese government is specifically targeting the, the Uyghur people. And even more so than, I mean, the Kazakhs are getting hit pretty hard too there. But it's not just a Muslim thing. There's also a bit of Uyghurness. And so... The um, the current situation comes from I think a a Chinese Communist Party desire to turn the Uyghur people into a kind of Muslim ethnic group that fits within um, what they want China to be, and so a group that is non-Chinese speaking, 
that is strongly Islamic, but not necessarily, don't think, you know, strong Saudi Arabia Islam. The, the Uyghurs are very strong Muslims in the sense that they are not likely to give it up easily. But that doesn't mean they know a lot about it. But from a Chinese standpoint, mm -hmm. their whole worldview, their whole authority system does not come from the Communist Party. And so like any right. one party totalitarian state, they feel like they need the loyalty of everybody. They need everybody's, not just their, you know, taxes and to um, obey the laws, but to um, follow their own faith system as well, if you will. So, so that, that's why the Uyghurs are a bit of a threat because they've got so much that's not Chinese. Well, there's a really independent mindset too among them. I, I, and a desire in some ways for more independence. I, I can remember being up in Ely once and seeing um, uh, an old mansion that had one time been the head of the government of, you know, what was kind of a fledgling Uyghur government system. This is, this is like kind of in the time of the revolution, revolution of Mao. And uh, you know, the story goes that, you know, the three heads of, of the Uyghur Republic, so to speak, I can't remember exactly what it was called. We're actually flying to Berlin or to, to Beijing to meet with Mao and their plane mysteriously went down. And that was what was left of, of that government system. So you still have this kind of memory of like a fledgling, almost independence that kind of gets snuffed out. So I'm wondering, and you feel free to clarify any of that you're much more the historian than I am on this, this topic. But so what I'm hearing you say is the tension with China isn't primarily just racial, just political, just religious. Um, but China continues to make this into like a terrorism slash job training kind of internment. Is that from what you're seeing and hearing? Is it about terrorism and job training or is it about something else? I mean, that's a good question. I think from... I think there are a lot of sincere Chinese leaders who think that this is what it take is going to take to make sure that there is no chance of terrorism um, with the Uyghur people. I think they have a very low opinion of the Uyghurs being able to live um, peaceably as Muslims within the Chinese state. So I think so. The, the reason I say this, and I, I, this isn't. I don't know how all the rest of my colleagues would think, but the whole the whole strike hard campaign, the idea that you know they, this is kind of this is a China, the way the Chinese describe what they're doing. It's a, the, they say in Chinese they're, they're striking hard against terrorism. So I think they're trying to stamp out any possibility of the Uyghurs thinking that they could do have any measure of freedom or um, commit acts of terrorism. So and so I mean I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's what China's trying to do. I think they're just being horribly evil about the way they do it. But their their goal is to, they, I think they really think that there is a terrorist threat and this is the only way to, to attack it. Uh, well, related question then, because at first China denied that there were Uyghur camps at all. Um, now they would downplay it. So what do you see and what are you hearing about what's really going on? Because again, I think... Uh, increasingly everyone um, on this side of the ocean recognizes you can't trust any of the official information that comes out. But what sense are you getting from those whom you know or those with family there? Um, I think the, the camps are awful, horrible. I mean, they'll, they'll bring in foreign journalists and make some look like they're really nice, but the stories we get from them are, are horrible. And the, what we know about how Chinese institutional systems work and we know about the depravity of man and it is, it is 
does not surprise me about it's sad, but it doesn't surprise me about how bad they are. Um, I'll only say they could be worse. I mean, you know, the Germans exterminated the people they hated. China is doing they're mm-hmm. they're not exterminating them just to kill them. They're trying to brainwash them into being something that they're currently not, and they're doing it so forcibly. Mm-hmm. Um, you could almost make that. I don't. I won't make that case. But so it's it's really bad. It's they're crammed in there. They're tied together. They're um, oftentimes tortured. At times they're tested on. At times they mm-hmm. are not allowed to speak for you know they're for days and weeks on end. Um, they're fed very, very little. There's, I mean, there's been stories of, um, the beatings and rape and I mean, all these horrible things, but you know, some may just be like mind numbingly boring too. The, maybe the nicer ones where they go in class and they learn Chinese and they learn, um, you know, all these political slogans and that's all they do. Which in its own way may almost be worse, right? Because then it seems like somewhat of an innocuous thing that maybe someone would be more likely to go along with. I I think there's a lot to get into there. We want to dive in more with our guest here today on the show and talk about uh, also the Christians in China and not just uh, the Uyghurs, but other marginalized groups. What does this look like for them? And we'll do that when we come back from this quick break. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I would like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Furthermore, as ministry leaders, our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed last year to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them and their good work at abuseprevention.org. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. Pray for them and follow along for this accreditation program coming soon. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. Today I have the privilege of having a conversation with Ian Hamilton, board member of the Banner of Truth and professor at Greenville Presbyterian Seminary. I find it hard to express this, but the brief time of the last two years that I've had in contact with Radius has been a signal moment, actually, in my Christian life for myself and my wife, Joan. But to see young lives gladly giving themselves to decades of language study, culture acquisition, knowing that it may take 5, 10, 15 years before they can meaningfully set before this language group the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. That's just been very moving for me, and I regularly am thankful to God for the privilege of having a little contact with Radius. Go to RadiusInternational.org, RadiusInternational.org. So, so Stephen, I'm just curious, 
I, I know one person, you, you may know the same person who at least through the grapevine was put into a camp and hasn't been heard from. I, I do know even from around here in my area, in the Bay Area, there's a few hundred Uyghur people. There's a huge sense of fear, even about contacting relatives back home. Um, you know, there's there's a lack of information. I've talked to Uyghurs that live in other countries and realizing they don't have access to their home families. Do you know uh, Uyghurs personally who've been put into uh, camps? Or have you heard or talked to anyone who's actually been um, in and out of, of those, um, how, how many do you think are actually, I mean, the, the government, you know, our, our government's reported up to 2 million. Um, is that what you're hearing as well from, from sources, you know, on the ground or even where you're currently living? Uh, what, what's going on with that? Um, they certainly got space for that many for 2 million. I mean, it's hard to tell how many, that doesn't actually even yeah. tell half the story that, Sure. sure. Maybe you have, you know, there's 10 to 12 million of them and maybe a million to 2 million are in camps. I mean, that's horrible. I will say. It's hard to even imagine that percentage just disappearing, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we did not, when we lived there, we did not know a single person who did not have a close friend or family member who was in the camps. Not a wow. one did not. Everyone was affected. Wow. And I think that's part of the plan is that it's not just, and this is why I think that telling a million, a million people in these camps is really only telling half the story. Even those who aren't yeah. in the camps are deathly afraid of the, 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 the government because they've essentially turned this entire massive province into a police state. There are security cameras, I mean, probably on average every 15 to 20 meters and more in some of the, the wow. more centralized parts of the city. There is in our city, and I, th I think this is throughout the whole province, they started in 2017, I believe, they started building little police um, stations every 500 feet. So that's like every every small city intersection had some sort of little police station manned by police policemen. And they, they also then are drafting in all of the local businesses into this kind of, you know, quasi deputized anti-terrorist force where they will, they've, we, they did this when we were there, they, they gave every um, business a little pancake shaped listening device and they would, it had a SIM card in it and it had some buttons on the front and you would push them if you had a certain emergencies. And so the big one in the middle was like kind of a terror emergency. And so you push that and it would sound this alarm and it would go right to the police station. And on the flip side, if your little pancake shaped device, um, bad alarm sounded, then you were required to take up the helmet and, um, the, basically the riot gear, a shield, a helmet, and a stick that you had to purchase. I'm not joking about this. You had to purchase from the local government and you were required to, with all of your, your, other shop owners to go to a certain location and essentially like set up a, you know, a little, uh, like a you know, Greek phalanx, a little, you know, group of people defending against some terrorist attack. And so you've got, you had a lot of middle-aged women who were running these shops. And so here they are, when that buzzer sounds, they're putting on the riot gear and running in their high heels. I mean, it was just sadly comical is one of those things that, that happened. So that, and so, they've, so essentially, all that's to say, they've essentially turned the entire province into this one massive police state prison. So sure, it's better to be out than in a prison, but even being out is incredibly stressful uh, to people. And so a lot of people don't want to go out. So they work and they go back home and watch, you know, Chinese state sponsored TV. And that's all they're 
you know, willing to do. So it's just, it's, it's, yeah, they're going to get far worse than just a numbers of people in a camp. So we, and we also want to recognize we're talking about the Uyghurs. There's also obviously a growing Christian movement um, in China that we're seeing large numbers of conversions, but uh, struggling more than a lot of other believers on the planet. Are there, you already mentioned there's probably up to a thousand Christian Uyghurs, I believe you said earlier in the show. Um, how are they being affected? Are they getting lumped in with the rest? Um, and what about the believers in the the Han Chinese Christian church? How do they look at um, these people who are Muslim who are uh, being marginalized in much the same way as, as Christians are? Yeah, I mean, I can't. We, we had to leave just before or kind of as China was um, cracking down on a lot of uh, Christian groups too, because they've been doing that as well. So I'm not sure how the the, the church in China is dealing with the, the Uyghurs, but the Uyghur church, I can speak on that. And this is, this is encouraging. They do have, um, there are some groups, you know, and they've got, they've got good and bad. They, you know, you read <laughs> first and second Corinthians and it was a mess, the early church. And so you yeah. get some of those same messy things going with the Uyghur church, but, but by God's grace, they, it has been established. There are some leaders that have been uh, following the Lord for, you know, more than a decade. Um, some of them are in prison. Some of them were put in prison before all of this started. Um, and some of them, as far as their, um, you know, being specifically Christian and Uyghur, I don't think it's, as far as I can tell, it's not helping or hurting them in terms of what China's doing, but that's, so it's not like the Chinese government is saying, oh, you're a Uyghur Christian, so we're not going to throw you camp into a camp. It doesn't really matter. If somebody's a Christian believer, that would make them more likely, um, if anything, to, to be marginalized, persecuted. Yeah, they would get it. I don't. I don't think the Chinese government. At least it didn't seem that they were making a distinction between Uyghur Christians and Uyghur Muslims. They were just kind of right. lumping them all together. Although I will say, we did hear some rumors, and this is just before the. This is just before Chen Tuanguo took a charge of um, Xinjiang, and all these repressive um, policies came into place. But, and I heard this from some Han people, is that um, Chinese authorities were seeing Christians as a bit different, especially um, some Uyghur Christians. And so they were, they were seeing them as not um, less likely to be terrorists. Although right now we can't tell if that has um, helped any you know, Uyghur Christians stay out of the camps at all. Well, it, it's very xenophobic. It's not, it's not just about a religious thing. There's a xenophobia and a, and a, and a, um, I don't know how to say this, but like uh, um, a very, very romanticized understanding of the Uyghur people that 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 Chinese TV and Chinese media has always portrayed. And even if you look at the old, you know, Mao Zedong era propaganda posters, you know, the, the Uyghurs are not portrayed at they're almost like American Indians would have been portrayed at one point, you know, like uh, as these mm. almost like a savage people. Um, and, and there's always been this really weird romanticism about them so that they're not treated as like intellectual people with, with these, you know, uh, complex uh, thought process. So they're treated really in, as a caricature. Um, at least that was, that was kind of my, my experience and, and often treated pretty brutally. And, 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 and to think that those things don't infiltrate the, the church, they do, you know, and I've, I had opportunity to talk to quite a few, um, believers within the Chinese church. And it took a lot, it takes a lot for them to overcome some of those prejudices. And so some of the, some of 
the Chinese believers, I think, do believe, you know, the propaganda that they hear. And uh, and others that have gotten to know Uyghurs personally, and they are able to overcome that. And, you know, the Holy Spirit helps them to be able to to combat some of those tendencies toward, you know, um, xenophobia in their own lives. Do um, you, you agree with that generally, Stephen? Yeah, I think, I mean, the idea that uh, a lot of a lot of Chinese Christians have this, not just Christians, sorry, a lot of Chinese have the idea about, like you were saying, the Uyghurs are, you know, kind of backwards or terrorists. I mean, it's really, it's it's quite wrong. Their history is long. They've got, the Chinese often think of them as just good for singing and dancing and good food, and there's far, far more. Right. Uyghurs are very yeah. long and developed culture and history and literature. Their poetry is just, is quite great. In fact, the language itself lends itself to poetry really well. So there's just so much there that's being lost, and that's that's quite sad. But in, so, but to answer your question about how the the you know the Chinese church is seeing them, it's going to be a mixed bag, and so. I've seen so we've ran into some uh-huh. Chinese professing Christians that don't even think you need to bring the gospel to the Uyghurs. It's like, well, they got their own religion and they're all backwards terrorists anyway, so why bother? We just care for our own people. But mm. at the same time, there are those who really do love the Uyghurs and are serving them, and it's it's incredibly powerful witness. So I can tell one story. I had a um, one of my best best friends, his name is Andrew. He's a Uyghur guy. He um, he got to know us, and we so we worked with a lot of uh, Han believers in various ways in our, our business. And he was kind of surprised at how we would interact with them, how they would interact with each other, but most especially how they would interact with him. And he came to the conclusion that there are two kinds of Han people. There are normal Han people who look at the Uyghurs as kind of backwards and terrorists, like we were talking about, or nothing, you know, not good for anything but um, music and food. And then there were Uyghur Christians, or then, then there were Han Christians who would be respectful, who would get to know their names, who would learn about their families, who would follow up with them, who would remember, who would um, really befriend them and treat them like um, people and like, like real people. And so that was a really strong testimony to, in the midst of this great racial tension, when um, the powerful side approaches the uh, oppressed side with love and humility and kindness. It's just, it's really, really quite powerful. Um, this guy ended up coming to faith and one of the big, and he'll tell in his story when he says, you know, the Lord, cause he, we to kind of circle back to how God uses many, many people to bring Muslims to faith. And he, he list the people that were influential in his life. And I mean, in there, it was just shocking. You had, um, you know, you had a few Americans, but you had, you know, Vladimir, this Uzbek guy, you had some Koreans, you had um, a number of Han believers who were very influential in him come to faith. So again, it's, it's a hard thing, but it's a great opportunity. And I think as we pray, this would be just a, a plug for the, the, the Chinese church. You know, what we're seeing happen in China in terms of the church growing exponentially in the face of persecution is pretty rare in history. Um, you know, it happened in the Roman empire. We, we celebrate, of course, in our church history, but I think when we yeah. look back a thousand years from now, we may look at our era as the era of the, the Christ's church in China, the growth and expansion wow. of it. So I think we need to wow. be praying for them that they would be not just reaching out to their own people, but also to the, the Muslims and the unreached people within their own borders. Cause it's a great opportunity for them. So 
I know you well enough to know that this has had an impact on you personally too. Um, you, uh, you wouldn't say this, but I know the hours you put into learning Mandarin, learning Uyghur, uh, learning the culture, you didn't take any shortcuts and, uh, you, you established something pretty significant, um, in that place. And, uh, and then it, it affected you. And one day uh, you found yourself in front of the police and uh, and in very short order, we're on your way out of the country. You, As much as you're able to, and I realize details, you know, I don't want to put you or your friends at risk, but can you share as many details about that? Like, how did that affect you and your family? What what happened there? I think it might be helpful for some that are thinking about or counting the cost about working in a restricted access place or helping a marginalized people group uh, um, to really weigh that. So what, what was that like for you? What what happened? You know, I wish I could say it was like all joyful and great. And I was so, you know, like, like Peter rejoicing to, you know, being counted to suffer the cost. The most part, I was just really stressed out and it was hard, (laughs) but that being said, I mean, God is really gracious to us for, for one, we were kind of prepared to go, um, they weren't renewing visas for us. So we knew that we were going to have to leave um, sooner or later. It happened sooner because I was um, I was caught with a lot of Bibles, a lot of them that belonged to local believers. And so, um, you know, when I look at what how the Chinese um, police and the state handles its um, prisoners, they were very, very deferential to me. I mean, it wasn't easy. They were, you know, they're, they're mean, they were doing good cop, bad cop. Although there was one, one police officer who, uh, who really was helpful by the end. In fact, hmm. you know, I, I, so all these Bibles are like, you know, these are legal and why'd you do this? What do you, you know, why are you doing this for people? They're looking for names and I needed to give them some, I had to give them names of people that weren't there anymore. And, um, I didn't do it just right. And I gave names that I wish I hadn't, um, not anybody that's hmm. still there or was even there at the time, but it was, it just was hard. I wasn't, I mean, I would say for the people counting the costs, I just kind of wasn't prepared. They grab you off the street? Is that what happened? You're just walking along, or did they show up at your house, or they showed them at my house? Like, yeah, okay. Because they caught. I mean, they were they caught on security camera and just followed my car home. I mean, it's wow. It's pretty, yeah. mm-hmm. So, but I mean, there was there was this one. So they're doing the questioning. They wanted a story, and so you know, I, I told them the story how I got it, and the the people that had copied the Bibles, and they were all not in country anymore, and so. The, uh, but one of these police officers just couldn't understand. He's like, you know, why would you do this for people? Why do you take the risk of all these? And I was, I think it was Holy Spirit in my anger too. And in a good way, I said, well, you know, if you really want to know, there's a pile of those books in the other room over there. Just pick one up and read it. <laughs> so, and he's kind of, yeah. but, and, you know, because that's how, I mean, God shows us that love. We, we, we stick up for one another. We, we fight for what's true. And, so in the end, it was, I mean, I, when I hear the stories of people that were in camps, I really don't have any um, thing to complain about. Yeah, it was hard. And, but, you know, we have all the resources. We had counseling. We've had, you know, places mm-hmm. to rest. We've had people that have gone through these kind of things together. And so the Lord's been really gracious to us. But the hard thing is for these people, especially the Uyghurs who, you know, who they don't, they don't have those sort of resources. And most importantly, they don't have Holy Spirit living in them to kind of help, help through the, the pain and difficulty, but 
So that gets at exactly what my next question was, is going to be. You're now working with Uyghurs in the States as Lord gives you opportunity to build those relationships. Yeah. They don't have those same resources to draw on. They can't cling to Christ for comfort or they can, but they, they aren't those who aren't believers yet. Uh, how, how do they cope with it? Is there a hopelessness? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, a lot of stress and post-traumatic PTSD and I mean, anxiety. It was all the, I mean, it's, I would say, if, you know, the, the Uyghurs that we communicate with, a lot of them aren't going to, you know, open up with us first time we meet and talk about their pain, but it's, um, I mean, counseling is needed help is needed. Prayer is needed. So it, it does in one sense, it gives a real opportunity because as people are seeking justice is what they're, they, they want justice for their people. Anybody that truly seeks justice is, is, is actually in the end, they're seeking God. And so at the end of the search for justice, the only place that you're going to find it, the truth is God. And so um, that, that does give us some hope. But on the flip side, it makes it harder because sometimes it's just hard to get people to talk about something beyond just the, the suffering of their people. And they're looking to their kind of their functional hope becomes, you know, let's make my people free again so that I can possibly go back and see my family. So it does make, yeah. it makes, you know, it's not, the ministry is not any easier or harder. It's just different. <laughs> right. And, and that's, Still and hard. that's the hard reality is that, yeah, it'd be, I'm sure that many of them want a independent state and all these things, but like the way the governments and the world works today, like that's not in anyone's best interest, you know, and very few governments are going to go out of their way and put their neck out to have that happen. And that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow when you know, your people are being um, culturally exterminated, you know, and uh, going through so much hardship. I, I do know, like, there's a lot of fear and panic just of not being able to get a hold of your family and wondering what that, that unknown is sometimes the scariest thing. And um, I can't imagine going through that wondering, you know, is my mom or dad or grandparents, are they locked up and, and not being able to get in touch with them? That's got to be horrific. Yeah. So as you, you know, people pray for the Uyghur people, pray that they would give, be given comfort and that um, they would receive help and hope. And yeah, because there's a ton of stress and it's sad to see. What positively are you seeing God doing through this? You know, whether that's what has God done for you in your own family's life through this hardship that you've endured, um, or what are you seeing uh, God doing even in the communities that you're interacting with and, and the Uyghur people that you know, or even the Chinese believers that you know? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think there's not any real easy answers to why God allows all of this. Um, you know, we know that he works everything to the good of those who love him and for his own glory. And so that is of great comfort, but it has increased our, our faith to look forward to that day and look forward to when we will see the good come of it. And, you know, I'm hopeful in my lifetime, we'll see some sort of good come from this incarceration of the Uyghurs so that, you know, maybe it'll open hearts or maybe it'll cause some sort of, you know, reaction with China where they um, open up a lot or, or something, but that's not really our hope at the end of the day. Um, you know, I've been studying with a buddy, a Uyghur friend of mine in, um, in Revelation, and um, it is a real blessing to read that with him because you look at, you know, I won't get into all the minutiae, and there's, of course, a lot of controversy, but the main idea, there's not a lot of controversy in that. 
It's a letter written to people who are getting their teeth knocked out by the Roman Empire. And essentially, God is saying to them, it's bad now. It's probably going to get worse. But in the end, I'm going to destroy all of those evil systems that were so crushing you. And so that does give great hope to kind of um, see God's plan through their eyes, um, especially the eyes of um, of believers who are being oppressed, weaker believers. So, um, and what would you say then? Because you've got weaker friends. Scott has weaker friends. Uh, let's say one of these people or a family member uh, ends up listening to this show, listening right now. What would be your words of counsel to them? Well, I would say to not put their hope in the American government. I mean, I'm really glad that our government has welcomed them and that if they're in this country, which if they're listening to this, they're probably in America, that they are, the Chinese Communist Party will not be able to get to them. And that is of of great comfort, but that's not an ultimate comfort. And that's um, not going to help when, you know, parents and siblings and good friends are still being oppressed. Um, And there are no easy answers to this, but if they were to look into God's word, to look into the gospels, to look into the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Mukhara's Kitab, they would, um, into the Injil and the Tavrat, they will find hope. They'll find a God who is not distant from his people, who loves them, but the one who doesn't just give them rules to follow, but comes down himself and saves them by his mighty hand. And so that would be the, the hope that, um, the place where they can find hope that would be what I would encourage them to do. So what, if there's, if there's Uyghurs listening, you know, are there resources that you'd recommend for them, um, uh, to, to check out or, or if there's just, you know, American Christians listening, uh, what, what resource would you recommend for them to be able to find out more about what's happening with Uyghurs? Is there, you know, I, I even, another option would be like, I, I know the, the Uyghurs that I know here in the States mostly work in restaurants and I'm sure they're really hurting financially. Is there any resources that you know of that even reach out and help those kind of people. So what kind of resources are out there in general that, that you can point people to? All right. Well, the first, if you're looking like a, uh, the most, the, the best resource of any kind would be to encourage the Uyghurs at least to, um, to read God's word. And, um, you can find it on hyatnuri.org, H-A-Y-A-T-N-U-R-I.org. And, um, or you just do Hyatt Nuri, search for the app on, on your phone, on your device. It's a really good Bible app. It's got recordings. It's got, um, things grouped by, um, scriptures grouped by themes. It's just scripture. It doesn't have anything else. Um, it's, it's quite, quite good. A lot of, uh, Uyghur believers like that. And so. Can you spell that URL again? Yeah. Um, H-A-Y-A-T-N-U-R-I. And sometimes they got to change the, you know, dot org or dot com um, or dot, I don't know what else they have on there because the, I mean, the Chinese government tries to shut them down. But if they do a search for H-A-Y-A-T-N-U-R-I dot org, dot org in terms of um, Christians looking for information on the Uyghurs, you know, I mean, Wikipedia is not bad. Get your get a basic um, framework. There's, if you do, um, BBC has done a series of articles on um, the camps and they usually keep keep track of it. There's a guy named Adrian Zenz, Z-E-N-S. He's a, just a great story. He's a German scholar. He's a, a really strong believer. And he's been, um, he's been one of the key researchers to find a lot of what China is doing. And so um, 
Yeah, he's a he's a neat guy. So Z E N S, if you can look up his name, a lot of things will be kind of attached to him. And uh, so he's kind of the kind of the whistleblower slash researcher. So uh, and then yeah, he's he's cited on a lot of he'll he'll share a lot. He's doing great work. And then as far as I mean, if if any people in the one, one interesting thing about the Uyghur community here in the U.S. is that they they don't want to game the system. They are like fiercely patriotic. I mean, just really strong. In fact, sometimes, because, you know, as American insiders, we can complain about some of the things that are going on in America. And they'll often, they don't like to hear that. I've learned when I've talked about it. So I, I, I usually try to keep my opinions to myself mm. if it's anything negative America mm. about America. Because they see that, you know, of all the countries in the world, this, you know, quote unquote, mm. Christian nation is the one that's protecting them. Wow. And that is not lost on Uyghurs. And so they're, they're very, very pro-America. And so, but one of the things that does in terms of you find people that are in need, they're reluctant to ask for help uh, because they don't want to be seen as people who are um, trying to, you know, take advantage of Americans. So, so one of the things that um, is, is good to do if you know Uyghurs, um, you can ask them, hey, is anybody in your community in need? I can help be a good mm. way to kind of try to, cause they, you know, they can refer their friend. It's a lot easier than asking for themselves. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think just simply just giving them the confidence to say, Hey, you know, um, applying for unemployment and I mean, everybody's doing it. Our, of course, our government leaders are going to figure out how to pay for it, but it's not, if they apply for unemployment, it's not like they're somehow taking advantage in a special way. I mean, everybody kind of should, that can legally and ethically be doing that. So in my opinion. So just encouraging that it's okay if they haven't done that already and help them through it. Cause a lot of times they just don't get the system. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, it was really, a, a something that we've been wanting to do for a very long time. And, uh, I, I really, this is a special one to me and, uh, really thankful for your, your time. And, um, we're going to continuing, I just encourage our listeners just continue to be praying for this, uh, ongoing work and, um, be praying for the weaker people and uh, take the time to, to understand and know about some of these people groups that, that maybe we don't hear about in, in a ton of detail and, um, and spend some time praying for them uh, this, during this time. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, you bet. Scott, Alex, thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.